I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Hello, 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 friends. <laughs> hello. 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 We've really changed in these several months <laughs> of isolation. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I am the host who carves the holiday roast, Sam Evans Brown. Here with me is Justine Paradise. Hello. <laughs> Taylor Quimby. Uh, hi. J- and Erica Janik. <laughs> Hello. And and we have congregated here digitally in, in part because, Erica, of an article that you shared on our Slack channel about how, uh, you know, about the darkness hmm. that is now. And by the darkness, you don't mean the like emotional and metaphysical <laughs> darkness. I'm talking about the darkness, the literal, the fact that it's that night is it's 3:42 right now, and night is falling as we speak. Oof. Yeah. So as we record this together, it is right around the winter solstice, and in Concord, where we are, we're getting a little less than nine hours of sunlight right now. And so the article I shared was written by Shayla Love from Vice, and it's basically asking. How is it that even though this happens literally every year, it always seems sort of surprising just how dark it is? Yeah, it always feels like sudden. And I think for many of us, this pandemic year has brought this like unique sense of dread. So the article I shared, it didn't talk about this year specifically, but the scientific explanation for why it's always kind of a shock was sort of obvious. Basically, your brain and your memories related to time are kind of jet lagged on summer and fall. Right. And then the end of daylight saving time comes around and it's like the absolute worst. Yeah. But my favorite part of the article is where it really says that one thing that influences our perception of the darkness is our attitude about it. And how in Norway, which is way darker than it is here, they see this time of year as cozy instead of demoralizing. Hmm. So, Sam, you you have been to Norway, yes? Like... Does this feel accurate to you? <laughs> yeah. I, t- I mean, I did take a 10-day vacation in Norway, and so now I am basically an expert in Norwegian culture. No, I, I mean, but I did actually call up a college friend of mine whose name is Anders Folleras. 
So I, I said this to you, uh, and I hope it's not offensive that we called you, that I'm calling you because we were hoping you'd be our token Norwegian on our show. <laughs> yeah, that's an, that's an honor, of course. But uh, you do also have to keep in mind that I've been quite Americanized uh, through the years. So rather than <laughs> token Norwegian, perhaps like honorary outside in Norwegian cultural attache. Esteemed Norwegian. Americanized Norwegian ambassador. Yes. <laughs> So, so you guys probably, many uh, have perhaps heard the Danish version of this idea that, that winter is actually great, uh, which the word is hygge, um, but there's a Norwegian word that's, that's basically the same, and it's, it's kusle. Kusle? The cozy. Yes, this like coziness idea. You would be saying, you know, leading up to Christmas, ah, now this is you know, kusle, when you the smell of baked goods and uh, the Christmas tree and... Uh, my American blown up Santa Claus outside, you know, that's cool to some extent as well. I don't think that the blown <laughs> up Santa's kushly. No, not at all. But 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 I will say that that having spent ten days in Norway and therefore having like gotten the slightest sense about these ideas, I think there's there's actually something that we're kind of missing when we talk about this idea of hygge or or kushle. To help explain it, I want to tell you about Hita, which I've seen translated as as summer house. They're these little cabins that a lot of Norwegian families own. And and they're like actual cabins, like uninsulated. Many of them have no electricity, and many of them don't have like a road to get to them. You, so you either have to walk or to ski to get there. And, and Anders recently bought one of these, and he put this outdoor pizza oven outside in the yard. So for New, new Year's last year, league going into 2020 it was i think it was you know uh, stormy weather it was negative 10 degrees and cold uh, a lot of snow and we were out there then making making pizza uh, just me and my my wife uh, and i think that's also you can also then use the word kushli for that kind of setting uh, and especially then when you go inside and you, you know you light the, the fireplace and you feel the heat and uh, that's like those are the moments you essentially live for, right? So the idea of kushle is really in, in Norway is connected to another idea then, which is friluftsliv. Friluftsliv? Friluftsliv, yeah. Friluftsliv. So what does that mean? Being, being outdoorsy, I say. Like kind of outdoor lifestyle-ish. There's, there's an expression in Norwegian that I actually didn't realize was, was a Norwegian expression because I had always heard it in English, which is that there is no bad weather, there's only bad clothing. Kind of rhymes a little bit there at the end. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah. Free Yeah. Free I've seen it translated elsewhere as getting outside every day as part of your lifestyle. But I, you know, if we put it in terms of humanity, it's quite scary, right? We spend 90% of our time indoors. And when you've turned 40, you've spent 36 of them indoors. I mean, it's 36 years. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah, we're like an indoor species at this point. We have like, we have, you know, we're indoor cats, all of us. Gosh. And so the, I think that when people talk about about hygge or kushli, they're missing that this is like kind of half of a dyad, right? Like if you really want to get kushli, you've got to be doing some friluftsliv too. I think I get this. It's like you can only be cozy if you also love but spend time in the non-cozy. 
It's a balance. Yeah. Exactly. Also, if you want to get kushle, you got to get free loop sleeve is like the tagline of the episode, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> So it is undoubtedly a weird and dark time of the year and in the world generally. So today on Outside In, we're doing our take on the ubiquitous end of the year lists, our top fuge or kushle and freelutzliv inspired activities, basically recommendations to keep you healthy, happy, and busy this winter. So I think in the spirit of um, you can't get kushle if you don't get free luftslev. Um, should we start with some outdoor recommendations? Sam, I feel like this is your area of <laughs> yeah, super We can start with mine if you want. Um, For those who don't know, Sam is also a Nordic ski coach in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, that's a great place to start because I wanted to start with an anecdote from my team from two years ago I think it was which was so every year after Christmas the team does a ski camp it's genuinely the best part of the year for everybody and and basically like I would characterize the shape of the ski season as as like trying to keep it together through the month of December until we get to ski camp then everyone has this like peak experience and then everything else is like the glide path off of ski camp (laughs) and so it like really is the it's like is the thing that makes our the team a team Two or three years ago, and I can't remember exactly how long ago, we had a year where I looked at the forecast, and the forecast for Craftsbury, Vermont, where we go, it was never going to be above zero the entire time we were up there. Oh. <laughs> and we were going to be there with 30 high school kids. So I, I, I was just like genuinely terrified. But we skied every day twice a day in that weather and and it wasn't like we just went outside and toughed it out like we did have to change plans we went out for shorter stints at a time kids would take little breaks to go inside and warm up everybody skied with like face masks or tape on their cheeks and noses to keep from getting frostbite but they they slowly figured out how to dress to stay warm and you know you can turn to a lot of different sources that will tell you how to do this, but the basic concepts are really like layers are really important and you want to start with things that are breathable on the bottom and then you work your way up to the least breathable layers on the top. And so none of this is particularly revelatory, but it was really interesting to just watch them figure it out and and to watch the whole group move past this fear of the cold and, and my own fear that they would be miserable to knowing how to handle it. And the, actually the warmest day was the day we left and it was 14 degrees, and everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is tropical. <laughs> and, and so my recommendations for how to dress are really more just like encouragement that you can get out when it's really cold or wintry and just like experiment with it. And, and you know, once you experience it a little bit, you'll, you'll see that it's possible. So my question is, though, like, what are your recommendations for, like, if uh, budget is an issue for you and you're, like, you're starting from zero, like yes. if you had $100 to invest in one good item to keep you comfortable outdoors this year, what would it be? Oh, for $100, you can get yourself like a really nice, lightweight shell jacket. 
um, which I think, especially for like endurance activities outdoors, oftentimes is like the key piece of gear. Or if you're doing something that's like a little slower and you're not generating as much heat, is it can be like a good base jacket under some some bigger, thicker jackets. I feel like so. This is a, a stupid anecdote, and and probably not wise for like actual sporting activities. But I remember when I was in high school, and there was this epic nor'easter that was coming in. It was like whiteout, blizzard conditions, you know, cold up up to your shins in snow already, and and like coming down hard. And I was like, I'm gonna walk to the video store and rent a VHS tape, or maybe this was I don't know if this was DVD or VHS, but it was a while back. I, you know, I didn't have any technical gear at this point. I wasn't into athletics of really any kind. I think I just wore like four pairs of sweatpants and like three <laughs> pairs of socks, four sweaters and a coat. You know, I looked like the uh, Michelin man walking down the street. But but there was something about it where I realized like, wow, I can be warm in crazy cold wintry conditions and just feel good. And it was it made me feel invincible in a moment that like gave me permission to get outside in crazy weather. Um, yeah. Probably was sweating too much underneath all those layers, and in other circumstances, it might not be the healthiest or smartest <laughs> thing to do, but... Um, but you were experimenting. Yeah. yeah. This is not going to, like, you know, this is not going to please, like, the public safety officials of the world, but, but like, getting a little hypothermic is not... <laughs> is not the end of the world. No, and I mean this in like in like a serious way that like if you're close to home and and you get a little chilly to the point where you're experiencing like mild hypothermia um, cuz is shivering hypothermia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's like the onset of hypothermia. Is so it, like and, we we've all experienced it. Yes, exactly. And and so like learning the way your body works and learning to learn to like recognize the signs of things that that your body will do in extreme situations in like a safe controlled environment this reminds me actually of um i i used to attend like a survival school like outdoor skills survival school and there's this one teacher that um said something like hunger doesn't mean you're gonna starve like yes and so like it's also about like reframing your attitude towards towards discomfort um the exposure is the first thing that you die from. So like, I don't want to like say that that's yeah. like, like <laughs> exactly. push that one yeah. with hypothermia, but like, I know what you mean. I, I can say that like, as somebody who, um, I also get outdoor outdoors for some like winter activity, but I am not as naturally inspired to do it as you are, Sam. I've had to start small to learn what I can do outside in the winter time. So when I started winter running, like, um, start with a mile, you know, it's like, it's like restarting to learn how to run because there is more like both clothing, but also equipment. You know, what kind of uh, spikes do you need if you're going to start winter hiking? What kind of this do you need? And for me, it's like I'm I'm still working my way up. I try and buy like one piece of equipment per year um, rather than thinking mm-hmm. I can just go out and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on all the stuff I need to become like a mountaineer. Just like yeah. take it one step at a time. And so, yeah. you know, I mean, like that. That's that's one way to think about it. Also, hot hot beverages. <laughs> get a mm-hmm. get a thermos. Put mm-hmm. some hot cider in there and bring it with you. And bring yep. it with you. I was gonna say that something that works really well for me is having a goal, even if it's Goals. Yes. a goal that you set for yourself. And so a goal that I've had, um, I've had this for a number of years, but I basically pick an area. And I'm going to do all the trails in that area or all the parks. So here in Concord, like there are 31 city trails 
and I've done all of them many times and I've branched out to like the other towns nearby and done all of their trails. Um, and it, but I think you can do this no matter where you live. Cause when I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, one year, my goal was to visit all of the city parks, even the ones that were like a rock with a bench next to it. There are 270 of them. So it took me a while, but I did that. And it, and it really like kind of set a purpose where it was like, I do want to go outside. And, you know, I just feel like it really helps you get to know where you live, maybe in a different way. Maybe I like working down a list too, but um, I don't know. I find it really helpful and motivating to get out at any time of year. At the beginning of the pandemic, my goal was to visit the beaver pond every day. Oh, that's a really good, good goal. goal. I feel like I haven't been as good as at setting goals. Like one thing that I like to do in the in the snowy winterland is night walks because snow at night is just mm. so special. Um, Magical. And I kind of dig, like to do it sort of post-storm or at the end of a storm, which, again, the public health safety officials of the world wouldn't uh, maybe approve of this recommendation. But it sort of lets the the weather tell you when to do it. So it's kind of like responding a bit to the world happening. And um, often you're sort of deliciously by yourself in a storm. It feels like the world changes. Um, but these are these are good tips. I think I'm going to take a leaf from your book this year and um, set some goals and maybe... And visit the beaver pond? <laughs> visit Sam's beaver pond. You'll see me in your yard every day. <laughs> it's public. It's not mine. It's public. You can go. <laughs> okay, so let's say you've had your fill of free Luftsliv. Uh, you've been to the beaver pond, you've made the blizzard pizza, you've hit up all the parks on your list, and now you're ready to curl up and get kushli. Um, I think we have a few non-screen recommendations as well, but but how about our outside-in digital huga recommendations? What have you guys been watching lately? Um, I can go first. So... I think that there have been a couple of things that have come out lately that really tie into themes that we explore on Outside In a lot. Um, and so my my TV recommendation is something that's a little mainstream and I might be kind of funny to recommend, but it's The Crown. Can I can I confess to have really no... Like, I know that The Crown exists and I've heard people say it, but... I genuinely have no <laughs> idea what it is. I mean, I mean, sure. Like, not everyone's going to have seen it, of course, but... Um, it is really popular on Netflix, but I think it can be interesting to approach more, I'd say, mainstream shows with an eye to how nature is treated, sort of especially when nature isn't the explicit focus of the show. Um, so for Sam and for for anyone else who hasn't seen it, The Crown is a show that basically dramatizes the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, it is not a documentary, but it's based on real events. And the first season starts before her coronation. But this latest season is in the 80s. And so the, the main storylines are the introduction of Princess Diana and of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. And I'm going to focus specifically on episode two, The Balmoral Test. <laughs> And the stag character therein. So this is a moment um, when the royal family is up at the Queen's estate in Scotland, Balmoral, and a, a stag, which has been critically injured by a trophy hunter on the neighboring estate, stumbles on onto their property. So we go after him? No, no, no. See that wee stream down there? That is the border where our estate ends and our neighbor's estate begins. We never cross that line. 
So there's a lot of material in this episode here about like hunting and sportsmanship in the upper classes um, and how these class structures are kind of represented by your like ability to navigate the natural world. And also your ability to wear the right outfit for the right situation. Indeed. For instance, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who comes from like a working class background, um, kind of apocryphally, doesn't bring outdoor shoes and she goes out hunting on the Scottish moor wearing this like bright blue dress. So the queen kind of like reprimands her. With stalking, the trick really is to disappear into nature, to preserve the element of surprise. So the next time you might not wear bright blue, it means the stag can see you. Or wear scent. It means he can smell you. Ooh! Now he can hear you too. So I think it is really interesting to watch this show through the lens of Outside In and see you know, a dramatization of the elitism that pervaded 19th and 20th century conservation um, and ideas that that Taylor really explored in his Fortress Conservation episode um, that we put out recently. This is this is kind of like following on the same ideas of like a walled off hunting park in which the elites get to sort of play. And make the rules for who gets to visit and how. Uh Uh-huh. It's business. It's not business. It's conservation. This is what people fail to understand. It's purely Taylor, what have you been watching? So uh, the show that I would recommend people watch is on Netflix. It's called Alien Worlds. Um, And it's this really cool mix of speculative science fiction and nature documentary. The basis of the show being that uh, scientists have been searching for Goldilocks exoplanets, um, for decades now, and there are estimates that there are something like 80 billion trillion possible Goldilocks planets in the universe. So obviously, some of them. Hope, hopefully, 80 billion trillion. That <laughs> is that number up. No, no, it's actually it's how, it it's how they said it. 80 billion trillion. Um, <laughs> so as far as the actual show goes, half of the scenes take place on Earth, where we're learning about biological concepts, and it's you know it's shot like a nature documentary, but you're actually talking to scientists, like they're in the in the frame talking to you. Um, while they look at some species that they study or something or tell you about work that they're doing. We calculate the energy intake from the nectar and the energy output from the oxygen, and we can calculate very accurately how much energy the bird is using. A hovering hummingbird consumes oxygen at an incredible rate, 10 times faster than an Olympic sprinter. Um, And then the other half are CGI-laden scenes that imagine how those biological concepts might play out if species evolved on one of these other Earth-like exoplanets. Um, So, for example, the first episode explores what life might look like on a planet with two times Earth's gravity. And you'd think that everything is just heavy and low to the ground, but actually the extra gravity makes the air in the atmosphere really dense. And so it operates more like water. So there are these animals that they, that they, I forget what they, they call them sky grazers that are basically swimming through the atmosphere, eating seeds that are, you know, sort of like floating through, um, you know, like with, with fluid dynamics. Oh, fun. On Atlas. The sky grazers never need to land. Their front and back wings are for direction and thrust. Their long middle wings are for catching thermals. 
Cool. Uh, I feel like this might fit the same theme as like your episode on nature documentaries, Taylor, with all manufactured audio. Like they maybe use the same techniques. <laughs> <laughs> and so like there's some really cool learning opportunities in the actual show that that feel bigger and broader and more interesting than just like what would aliens look like? And in fact, um, you know, they 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 continually touch on points that we have talked about in Outside In. For example, there's a whole section where they're talking about generalists versus um, specialists, which is something that, Sam, you covered with vultures and uh, what was the thrush? What was the name Big of Nell's it? thrush. Yeah, the Big Nell's thrush. The generalists are the boneless scavengers. Like crocodiles, they eat anything and live anywhere. On this imagined high-gravity world, they could be the great survivors. I consider myself a boneless scavenger. <laughs> That's how I've gotten to where I am today. Uh, Erica, do you, ha- do you have a, a, a show for us? I do. I have a very, very different show than <laughs> the two that have been recommended so far. Mine is actually Scandinavian. So it has to be Hugo. Yeah, exactly. By design. As you know, I watch a lot of foreign dramas. Uh, but this one is a Norwegian show, and it's called Occupied. And it is a climate change political thriller. Can you believe it? Welcome to the seaside. It's been occupied. So the plot revolves around oil production being halted in the Middle East due to war. Uh, In this near future that it's set in, the U.S. has become energy independent. And so Norway is left as the main supplier to the world. But, 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 but. The Norwegian prime minister, he's a member of the Green Party. His name's Jesper Berg. And he's decided to shut down the Norwegian pipelines in favor of thorium nuclear plants. And not everyone is happy about this decision. And Russia basically invades. And Jesper is forced into a partnership to keep the oil and gas going. It came as a shock to European leaders who knew that Jesper Berg had threatened to turn off the gas turn off the oil, but when he actually did so, it came as an enormous surprise to them. So what's next? How can the EU put pressure on Norway? I would think that in the corridors of power in Brussels, people are already making it very clear to the Norwegians that unless they change their policies, there will be draconian trade sanctions. Well, perhaps that's why... Uh, This is from the first episode. Um, You'll kind of hear Prime Minister Jesper Berg. He's in his office, but he's actually watching the BBC talk about what he's done. Um, And this bit does happen to be in English. The show, I would say, actually does have a fair bit of English in it because there's a lot of interaction between the Norwegians and the Russians, and they speak English to each other. But for me, part of the fun of watching these shows, part of why I watch so many of them, is because I have to read the subtitles and it's one of the only times that I it's the only thing I can do like if I tried to do something else at the same time I would miss something and so I'm like just paying attention to that show and that story and it feels like forcing I kind of have to like force myself not to multitask and in some ways that feels relaxing to me and you know and there's parts of the shows that I think feel far-fetched but at the same time it doesn't feel that outside of the possibility um what really unfolds the show is three seasons long and there's domestic terrorism 
Um, there's a nativist movement, there's a kidnapping. And I think one of the things that I find the most interesting about it is there's this generational um, kind of tug of war about energy solutions. There's a whole group of, of older people on the show who are like, we can't just shut off the oil immediately. Like it has to be gradual. <laughs> and there's a whole group of other people that are like, no, like stop now and let's Let's move. Let's transition. Why are we doing this? Um, I don't know if you guys knew. I was actually ex- executive producer of that show. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel, Sam, that you in particular would enjoy this show. I was um, like, thorium reactors? <gasps> yeah. You know, I think it get, does get back to that. Like, what gives you comfort? <laughs> this yeah. might, you know, a, a climate change political thriller might not seem like the thing that gives you comfort. But um, I don't know. I found a lot of value in it and a lot of things to think about and talk about. And it's a show that I have told many people to watch because I, I want to talk about it, even if I have to talk about it over Zoom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, Sam? What What have you been watching? So I don't tend to watch a lot of TV. And when I do, I'm looking for just pure escapism. And so I will say, I think my recommendation stands out for having some pretty bad acting, but it does have spaceships. When you spend your whole life living under a dome, even the idea of an ocean is almost impossible to imagine. They are an entire culture working together to turn a lifeless rock into a garden. So The Expanse is set in a future in which humans have colonized the solar system. There's this sort of like Cold War-esque tensions between Earth and Mars, and people live for years or their entire lives on spaceships. May I ask you something? Do you miss Earth? It's it's a science fiction show that was on the Sci-Fi Network, and then Sci-Fi let it die, and then Amazon rebooted it, and now they're actually doing a new season, which has just started. And, you know, it's funny, there are a lot of bad TV moments in it that I can recognize that these are bad TV moments, but there are also there's also so much just, like, good sci-fi that I'm willing to forgive it. Um, mm. And and uh, mostly it's just, like, the physics of space that they do really well. Oh, fun. Um, and so, for instance, uh, there's no gravity in any of their spaceships unless the spaceship is rotating, right, because that's that gives you sort of... Uh, you know, that would that would push you to the outside of the ship and make your feet touch the touch the, the deck or if a ship is accelerating. Acceleration drug dispensers are full. This will be a high G maneuver. Prepare for flip and burn. So you can be on a ship and if it's accelerating in one direction, then um, then it'll push you toward the floor. And that means then that all of the ships are designed in such a way that the floors are like sort of sideways to how you would think they would be. Right. Mm-hmm. If you if like the engine is the back, the the floor has to be facing away from the engine, essentially, in order for it to for thrust to generate gravity. Um, and, and it was actually like I was like two seasons into the show before I realized that was the case. I was like, why are they? Oh, the ship is sideways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. But that's really interesting. The one that really got me is this very, very short moment from from what I think is the first season where all the characters, they're on this this rotating space station in the asteroid belt, which, you know, because it's not real gravity, it means that there are a bunch of weird things that happen. And one is that when you pour liquids, they behave kind of 
strangely. And so there's this scene where where a character pours this shot of whiskey and it does this like little spiral out of the bottle and into the glass. Whoa. And they don't even mention it. It just it just like happens, you know. Oh, I love that world building. <laughs> exactly. Um so so that's my recommendation for a show that puts like the sci in sci-fi. So we should take a break. Uh because that is that is very hooga breaks. <laughs> Naps. <laughs> Not being hard on yourself. Naps. Also because we have sponsors. We do have sponsors. Okay, be right yeah. back. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Outside In. And to start off the new year, we're trying something a little different. This is the Outside In team's recommendations for how to make it through a long COVID winter. So for our kushli or cozy recommendations, we started with screen-based things. And, and now I think we should be giving people recommendations for what they should do when they're hoping to take a break from their laptops, mm. since that's like where we live these days. Yeah. Um, so who wants to go first? I, I, Erica, I feel like you're the queen of non-screen-based activities. <laughs> I guess that is probably true. I do have a lot of hobbies, craft projects, things that prepare me for the end of the world did i just see you post on instagram earlier this week that you made a set of shaker style brooms yes i did just make uh, a bunch of brooms which was really fun uh but i do feel like even that the pandemic has really changed things i've just had a hard time finding the same motivation and satisfaction in in doing things like that that i that i used to do um which is kind of sad I'm still making things, but it's uh, been a little bit harder to motivate. I'm actually going to recommend something that's a non-craft activity, though. It's a book that I really enjoyed. It's called Homegoing by Yaw Jesse. I missed this book when it first came out in 2016, but I read it a few months ago. And it's a book that looks at how the legacy of enslavement passes through generations. And it starts in 18th century Ghana with two half-sisters, one of whom is sold into marriage. She actually marries a slave trader and goes to live in this place called the Cape Coast Castle, which is where they actually keep people that are enslaved before they get sent on the Middle Passage. Um, and the other sister is taken in a raid and ends up in the dungeon of that castle before being transported to the Americas. So one is enslaved, one is not. Um, the book follows a different person from each side of the family through the generations, um, all the way to America, the Civil War, Harlem. And you might be thinking that this book must be 3,000 pages long <laughs> to cover, because I think it's just really remarkable that, you know, we go through three centuries, basically, of stories and people in about 300 pages. Um, wow. Yeah. And it's just really it's really beautiful. Um, like the topic is obviously heavy and very serious, but it's written uh, just with so much care and love and each of the characters in each of the chapters really just come alive. I just loved it and found it uh, transporting and beautiful. And maybe I like to relax with heavier things, but um, I highly recommend this book. I thought it was amazing. It sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, Erica, your recommendation made me think about how, you know, I feel like we move in and out of relationship in terms of what we seek. Like, 
at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember I went through this period of wanting to watch movies and read about history specifically related to the Holocaust, Mm. which... You know, I'll want to engage with, quote unquote, heavier material or learn about times when people experienced, you know, seismic or incomprehensible events. Um, And at other times um, during this pandemic, I've looked for humor almost exclusively, um, which I guess brings me to a kind of obvious point that's, you know, some of our recommendations are going to work some of the time for some people. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like music. Do you ever have, you know, like. Like if you're feeling down, sometimes you want down music that represents how you feel. And sometimes you want the opposite to like stir something and get you moving in the other direction. And, you know, sometimes sometimes we want to reinforce exactly how we're feeling and sometimes we want to change it. Yeah, I know I personally uh, lapsed back into the mountain goats in terms of listening <laughs> choices lately. So so I that resonates with me. I have been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift, which is not my recommendation for this. <laughs> but I must admit, I, I no, hey, she whatever. just came out with some I, big albums. I, yeah, no, whatever. I, that's what I'm listening to. It's I. Oh gosh, I've just you I don't just, want to ignite I, a debate here about Taylor Swift. <laughs> I just put myself in a terrible position here. I'm just pretend I didn't say that. Taylor, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me let me uh, cleanse my verbal palate. <laughs> As you all know, I've gotten pretty big into board games these past few years. There's this one called Cartographers. It's really neat. It's played on just basically a sheet of paper. The the game comes with like hundreds of these sheets, so you can hand out one to each player. The theme is that you're a cartographer and you're building a fantasy map that has forests Ooh. and rivers and occasionally hordes of goblins and things <laughs> like that. Um, and you're sort of arranging these shapes of those different land masses onto a grid. It's kind of like Tetris or like Blockus, but it has this feeling that you're making a map. You can sort of like inject a little more artistic aesthetic into it if you want, or just do it really simple and play it for the points. Um, but it, but it's a really neat game. I, it's not like super complicated, but it's just complicated enough. My nine-year-old likes to play it. And we, as we often do, he... he doesn't like competitive games. So sometimes we play games that are supposed to be competitive, but we just don't, we de-emphasize the points and we play it for the fun of playing and we add our points together at the end. So that's that's been a really fun two-player game that I've been playing lately. Another game that is very outdoorsy, a little more complicated, and one that you guys probably have heard of because it won a ton of board game awards a couple of years ago. It's called Wingspan. I was hoping you were going to talk about Wingspan. Uh, Wingspan (laughs) is the best, isn't it? I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. It very much falls into that category of what you were just talking about where it's like, it's competitive, but like you only know who who's winning or losing at the very end when you count the points, and mostly you're just like, look at my beautiful birds. beautiful birds oh it it works because uh, the art is gorgeous so there's tons of cards they're real birds they have like fun bird facts on the cards and then when you're playing the game um the 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 way it works is each bird has sort of like a special power and you can activate a row of birds that you're attracting to your nature preserve throughout the game and all of their powers are like actually associated with the with the behavior of that species so you know they're like predator birds that you get points for killing mice, and then there are birds that um, cash seeds in the bark of trees. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so it's a beautiful game. It like is very sort of natural world inspired. Like it's complicated. It's very complicated, I would say, but it it's essentially like you. It's an investment with your friends because the first round is going to be them learning. The first time you play with them is going to be them learning. Yeah, I think board games generally though are like. They are the definition of kushli. Wingspan is a game about birds. It's a lovely, gentle thing 
and there's beautiful pictures, but the purest joy in that pretty box is as simple as saying the names of the birds. Carolina chickadee, painted bunting, loggerhead shrike, juniper titmouse, Buick's wren, and the blue-grey gnatcatcher. Justine, what do you have? So I, I have a couple things I've been doing. Um, like Taylor, I've been playing some games. My fiance and I play a lot of backgammon. Um, I think next we might seek, um, you know, the game of Go. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. it's it's a board game, sort of a grid. It's a game of strategy. Um, as I understand it, it originated in China like several millennia ago, um, and it's both a really simple game, but it takes a lot of skill and has the prestige of um, you know games like chess. Um, I played once back in the day, and um, I'm looking to find another Go board. Um, the classical version is made with um, clamshell and slate pieces, and the board itself, um, the company that I looked up, um, makes boards in Japan, and on their website I read that from start to finish, it takes 15 years to make a traditional <laughs> board. Um, but yeah, so I might pursue some more um, some more traditional strategy games. But the other thing I'll recommend is that... Um, during this pandemic, I've definitely had moments of high anxiety where maybe I had an encounter of uh, that I thought was maybe not totally COVID safe or something. Um, and I've had trouble sleeping occasionally because I'll be thinking about it. Um, and I've been using this technique called yoga nidra. It's part of a restorative yoga practice. And it basically means uh, yogic sleep. And it's a style of meditation that... Um, have you ever heard of um, body scan meditation? No. Yes. Yeah, it's it's very effective for me. Like you you can go on YouTube and find like free versions of this, but you'll lie down in a comfortable position and the the teacher will prompt you basically to move your your mental attention to different parts of your body um in a, a scan. Begin by bringing your awareness to the right hand. Right thumb. Index finger. And it like literally puts me to sleep. It's incredible. <laughs> so if anyone is um uh, shares that kind of like difficulty sleeping sometimes in the pandemic, I uh, would recommend trying that. I found that really helpful. Um, meditation is difficult and takes practice, but I found the body scan as a as a good way to help focus your thoughts. Well, it's also like as far as the huga idea. Um, the, the idea kind of at the center of this, too, is like at the center of yourself is always a place of peace. Um, so like finding home in your body um, and that is always there for you. episode goes out, we are still in our mid-winter fund drive. We have a goal of 100 donors in this drive, and if we get there, our promise to you is that we will produce an extra episode in addition to our regular bi-weekly releases. This episode will be an installment of our 10 by 10 series, Deep Dives into Special Ecosystems. We hope that these episodes are like little trips that transport you to another place on our spectacular planet. And if you donate, you get to vote on which ecosystem we explore. Choose between a winter beach, a city gutter, snowpack, 
and the bird's nest. We're well on our way, but we're getting into the final stretch, and as I record this, we have 32 more donations to go. The link to donate is outsideinradio.org slash donate. That's outsideinradio.org slash donate. Oh, and if you have already donated, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Taylor Quimby, and Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of Moonlit Snowy Walks in the Great North Woods. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. I have this deep wish that winter would actually be the time when we have the most daylight and summer would be the time when we have the least daylight. Right. But yeah. But isn't that so, just so if you just move to the southern hemisphere, no. it is that way, but no, no, but no. you call winter summer and summer winter. Oh my God, Taylor, no. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, isn't that how it works? <laughs> no. We have to change oh, our well, orbit and our Winter happens and... because there's less sun. <laughs> That's why winter happens. <laughs> Okay, okay, I under- I cut that. Don't use it. Don't use it. <laughs>